what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. What did you want to be when you grew up? I had a few ideas. Pastor, band director, professor. As a fairly unimaginative kid, I pretty much cycled through those three moderately practical options until I was about 20. My mom likes to tell a story about me preaching from the top of our backyard slide when I was just six or seven years old. Although I did go through a brief phase where I wanted to be a marine biologist. While pastor, band director, and professor are distinctly different paths, they actually have quite a bit in common. Speaking in front of groups, learning a lot, leadership, and generating some kind of creative project. So while I'm not a pastor, band director, or professor today, my work certainly falls into the same bucket. Each of these professions were based on what I loved. Jesus, music, and learning. Now I'm just about 40 years old, and I can't remember a time when I didn't expect to do what I love for a living, or a time when I didn't associate occupation with identity. That said, culturally speaking, doing what you love for a living is a fairly new concept. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy with your humanity intact. This week, the next installment in Context Clues, a series that dives deep into the greater context around the decisions we make in our small businesses. Doing what you love for a living is, in theory, a nice concept. If you're going to spend 30, 40, 50 or more hours per week doing something then doing something that makes you happy seems to be a good plan. But how did we go from seeing a job as a way to get what you need to live to the primary means of our self-discovery and personal fulfillment? We're going to cover a lot of territory in this episode, and it's not an episode with a bunch of practical recommendations. Instead, it's a crash course in critical thinking about why you do what you do for a living, which in turn will help you make better practical decisions about how you run your business or navigate your career. Let's start with a brief history of doing what you love. Doing what you love for a living is a new concept. But just as with so many other aspects of our 21st century economy, it feels like it's always been the goal. That's because our economic system is quite clever. It's continually reinventing itself as capital finds new ways to profit. In the earliest days of the American colonies, hard work was seen as a godly endeavor, a sign of your predetermined salvation. This laid the groundwork for America's unique brand of capitalism. By equating eternal salvation with financial accumulation, capitalists justified their endeavors and workers gladly met the needs of industry. By the early 20th century, the spirit of capitalism morphed to venerate the nuclear family and job loyalty. 
Fordism proclaimed middle-class success as the man on the assembly line 40 hours per week and the woman at home caring for children and home. Wage work was the primary means of supporting a household. The work itself wasn't so important as long as it provided for a comfortable life for your family. Then, consumer culture started to reach a fever pitch, and more women began working outside of the home in the 70s and 80s. The spirit of capitalism evolved again to normalize dual-earner households and all the consumer goods those households could buy. More workers attuned themselves to careers that made money and supported lifestyles that were beyond comfortable. To do so, they worked longer and longer hours and often exposed themselves to more and more moral injury. The 90s saw yet another shift as capitalism continued to accelerate. American society became even more individualistic and personal responsibility became the calling card of both political parties. At the same time, employers demanded more and more of workers, while non-wage benefits rapidly declined. Even though the mid to late 90s saw a booming economy, workers saw no wage increases in relative terms. This period is what set the stage for the rapid rise of do-what-you-love ideology. Luke Boltanski and Eve Schiapello suggest that capitalism's message toward work evolves to answer these three questions. First, how will people secure a living for themselves and their families? Second, how do they find enthusiasm for the process of accumulation, even if they're not going to pocket the profits? And third, how can they justify the system and defend it against accusations of injustice? Doing what you love today seems to serve as an answer to each question. Since wages don't seem to provide for workers or families today, doing what you love becomes a substitute for economic stability. Doing what you love provides a basis for work passion and enthusiasm, even without direct benefit of the work performed. Doing what you love provides cover for the injustices of the system by putting an affective mask over exhaustion and even misery. Sarah Jaffe observes how the demands of workers in the second half of the 20th century were co-opted by corporate initiatives, quote, they wanted democratic control over the firm, they got employee stock ownership plans, they wanted less work, a life less dominated by the demands of the boss, they got fewer jobs, and work fragmented into gigs. They wanted more interesting work, they got simply more work. They wanted authentic human connection. They got demands to love their jobs. Jaffe argues that we've accepted this bait and switch because we've been sold on what she calls the labor of love. Here she is in conversation with theorist Kathy Weeks, who we'll hear more about in a bit. The labor of love is this thing that I have experienced both working as a journalist and also working in the service industry, which I did for many years before I was able to be a journalist full time which is this idea that we work in order not to find a paycheck, but to find some sort of fulfillment and that we are supposed to show up at work every day because we love it and we really enjoy it. And it's great because we would, I don't know, we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves otherwise. Now, I was surprised to learn that Abraham Maslow was among the first to propose work as the best tool for self-actualization. That's Maslow, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. 
Now, I'd done some basic research on the hierarchy of needs for my book, but I hadn't come across his influential work originally titled Eusychian Management, published in 1965. Eusychian is a term Maslow invented to describe having or moving toward a superior mind or soul. Maslow came to believe that work was our best tool for achieving a superior mind or soul, that by engaging in fulfilling and purposeful work, we could become better people. He even suggested that most people would benefit more from purposeful work than from therapy. Cool. (laughs) Today, both work and consumption are positioned as our best means for self-actualization. Enhancing my economic situation is a stand-in for enhancing my life as a whole. In fact, Target has been running ads that explicitly state that shopping will deliver on Maslow's higher-level needs. Come in for workout gear. Leave feeling empowered. Come in for snack time. Leave more fulfilled. Now, it's easy to let a commercial like that just float on by between segments of Good Mythical Morning. But if you actually pay attention, well, I can't imagine saying anything other than, what the hell? The subject of doing what you love is a complicated one for me. Right off the bat, It's complicated by my privilege as a college-educated white woman. But it's also complicated by growing up in a downwardly mobile working-class family. With the help of hindsight, I know that my own expectations as a smart, promising child weren't just to exceed my parents' station in life. The expectation was that I could regain my grandparents' station or even exceed it. I remember the moment this started to click for me. I was already a senior in college, working in a sleepy jewelry store the size of a walk-in closet at a fancy hotel. My manager had taken an interest in me and fed my general curiosity by sharing everything she knew about the jewelry business, which was quite extensive. One day, she brought in some information she'd printed out about a grant for graduate students who were the first to graduate college in their families. When she saw it, she thought of me. I don't remember what she knew of my parents or their education level, but I do remember telling her in response that I wasn't really the first person to graduate from college in my family. My grandmother had earned a bachelor's degree in chemistry in the 1940s. Now, my parents did do work they enjoyed. My mother was a tailor, my father a cop. But that's not why they did the work. My mom sewed because that work allowed her to be at home with her kids. My dad was a cop because, yes, he was interested in criminal justice and because it's one of the few working class jobs that still included full benefits and a pension. Now, I've often told the story of the breakdown that led me to quit grad school before I even started. Preparing to leave for Syracuse, I was consumed by dread that doing what I love would never lead to a stable life. I knew I could finish grad school, but what then? Would I be able to find a tenure-track professorship? Or would I be resigned to gig work as an adjunct for the rest of my life? Would I even be able to find work as an adjunct? Grief is the only way to describe what I wrestled with during those lonely weeks. I felt the profound loss of a future doing what I love, a future brightened by meaning and fulfillment. I grieved the missed opportunities and situational misunderstandings that left me with a four-year degree and zero job prospects. 
by recognizing that what I love to do isn't economically viable. I internalized my value to a society that measures everything in productivity. I felt worthless, literally. This was the first time the weight of adulthood and its disappointments pour down on me. And I've been clawing and scratching my way back to that life-defining moment for nearly 20 years now, trying to find a balance between doing what I love and meeting my own needs, trying to reclaim what felt like a birthright while simultaneously coming to terms with its sheer improbability, trying to understand my self-worth in a culture that doesn't know how to measure me. What would you do for a living if money wasn't an issue? I suppose that's the grown-up's version of the what do you want to be when you grow up question. And, you know, it's just as fraught. For all but a minuscule group of people, money will always be an issue. We are responsible for paying our own way here in the U.S., and the cost of living literally just keeps going up as we receive less support from our communities, employers, and the government. Case in point, my house earned more than I did last year. What can I say? It was a bad year for me and a great year for my house. In fact, according to a study by Zillow, houses in general earned more than people last year. The median value increase for a home was almost $53,000, while the median income for a full-time worker was only $50,000, notes Timothy Noah in The New Republic. Noah goes on to make the case that it turns out working is a fool's game by what she means that we've been sold on this idea of full-time work as the path to financial independence and long-term stability. But really, asset ownership is the only way to make it in the 21st century. Here's Dan Olson, the filmmaker behind the viral video Line Goes Up, explaining this phenomenon to Ezra Klein. If you want to move from working class to idle class, you're never going to do that off of wages. Like it's mathematically impossible for you to work enough hours to get rich off of even like 25 bucks an hour, 50 bucks an hour, 80 bucks an hour. If you want to move from working class to idle class, you need to find something that's going to give you 1,000 times, 10,000 times, 100,000 times returns. You need to participate in these investment schemes. And so there's this frustration that the average person has been denied the opportunity to win this very specific type of lottery. But let's not even talk about moving from the working class to the idle class. What about the prospect of working to live a life free from constant anxiety that an unexpected bill could topple everything you've worked for? Freedom from constant anxiety about an unexpected bill isn't merely a question of how much money you make, although earning more certainly helps. In fact, freedom from financial anxiety isn't something any of us can truly accomplish individually. 
Making more money every year doesn't have a significant impact on the potential for it to all go up in smoke in an emergency. Relief requires a network of support and resources. It's a community project. Because the more one person in a community is vulnerable, the more vulnerable any of us are as individuals. But this isn't what's being sold to us today. What's being sold is the spectacle of personal enrichment. Philosopher and theorist Guy Debord took this on in the Society of the Spectacle in 1967. He observed that post-industrial societies tend to focus less and less on material reality and more on the immense accumulation of spectacles. He notes how life becomes more of a performance and that our experiences are, quote, replaced with their representation in the form of images. Sounds like influencer marketing. Sounds like Instagram. Sounds like fancy websites and photo shoots rather than sound business systems. Do what you love, build a business, and enjoy financial freedom, they tell us. Be an owner, not a worker, they say. But if there's anything I've learned from studying small businesses over the last decade plus, it's that there's the truth and then there's the marketing message. There's the facade of glamour, success, and luxury, and then there's the reality of daily life and work. And the confusion of the image with the reality can do a lot of harm. Imagine a seven-figure online business, one that sells an online course and a high-end mastermind program. Most of the time, that business is spending tens of thousands of dollars each month on Facebook ads, paying out just as much to affiliate marketers and supporting a small staff. The owner might take home $200,000, and that's nothing to sneeze at, of course. But there are actually far easier ways to earn $200,000 a year. It's the spectacle of the seven-figure online course business that makes that the preferred path for many. And what leaves so many with a business that doesn't really function at all. Given the hours and energy we trade for the potential of achieving this spectacle, I've been thinking a lot about who really benefits from this arrangement, who benefits from the spectacle of success, who benefits when so many of us feel unemployable by virtue of our hopes and dreams, who really benefits when a significant segment of the middle class is compelled to become micro-capitalists because all of the other options have dried up. Does this arrangement really create more economic opportunity or simply new ways to exploit and be exploited? Now, it's true that in many ways, my life has gotten easier since becoming a business owner. I'm able to earn a good living from interests that would never pay as well in the labor market. My schedule is more flexible. I spend more time doing things I'm excited about than not. But in many ways, my life is still more precarious than it was 15 years ago. Health insurance, retirement, disability insurance, those are all squarely on me and the good graces of companies that don't particularly like to do business with individuals. Workers' compensation and unemployment insurance? Forget about it. And when I bought my house seven years ago, I had to hurtle through so many hoops just to get my mortgage approved without W-2s, even though my income-to-home-price ratio was significantly under-leveraged. And listener, I have it easy. 
I have both a house and a job. Others have to clear much bigger obstacles to stability. Many jobs simply don't pay enough. They have no benefits, no security, not even a regular schedule. We know this. For all but a lucky few, there is no way to work yourself into upward mobility today. What's more, the passion paradigm, as sociologist Lindsay De Palma dubbed it, has convinced us that work passion is more important than compensation. Why would we trade doing what we love for letting our needs go unmet? De Palma suggests that we pursue work passion as a form of necessitated self-care, a way to alleviate some of the stress that comes from work expanding into every corner of our lives and making up a core part of our identities. Working in the 21st century will take its toll on you, whether you're in business for yourself or working for someone else. So loving your work is one way to mitigate that harm. The passion paradigm flips the hierarchy of needs on its head. Love your work first, and maybe one day you'll have some money in a savings account. And the passion paradigm is pervasive. De Palma studied a group of engineers, graphic designers, and nurses as a sample of the professional workforce. She found that 77% of respondents felt that passion should be a higher priority than pay or talent when it comes to work. 92% believed that college-educated workers should be passionate about their work, and the vast majority of that group believed that professionals had it within their own control to find work they're passionate about. And 78% of all respondents believed that Everyone has the power to do work they're passionate about, a number that shocked both De Palma and me. But let's go back to that first number. 77% of respondents felt that passion should be prioritized above pay or talent. Now, I was certainly fed that line throughout my education and early career. And today, under ideal circumstances, I might still align myself with that belief. But today's circumstances are not ideal. Work is ubiquitous in our lives today. Whether you respond to emails after work or merely scroll through the gram while you're watching TV, there are few times that our brains aren't exposed to some aspect of our work. Similarly to De Palma, gender and political theorist Kathy Weeks argues that the desire to love your work is a direct result of work taking over our lives. Do what you love ideology romanticizes work in a way that allows us to overlook the system's flaws, the same way that romantic love allows you to overlook the way your beloved chews their food or leaves their damp towel on the floor. And so what is do what you love ideology? Do what you love ideology is a set of beliefs and moral judgments about how workers can find meaningful delight in their jobs. It's a cultural standard that insists on loving your work and being happy on the job as the preferred approach to how you earn a living. Obviously, getting paid to do work you love isn't the problem, the concern with this ideology is how it's used to extract more time, effort, and will from workers. Weeks writes, quote, 
The familiar cultural tropes of love and happiness are posed both as the way to tap into what is imagined as a vast reservoir of will and energy, and as the handle that employers can use to leverage that energy into productive activity. In other words, if you're expected to love what you do, then employers will expect you to give and give and give because of that affection. Of course, we actually play out that same script in our own businesses. We willingly go above and beyond with our time and attention. And why not? We love what we do, right? Right? When I started a business, I I didn't do it because I was necessarily wanting to become a business owner. It was more about chasing autonomy and proving something to myself, which at that time meant leaving my corporate life behind. That's Lou Blazer. I run a small media company that serves the midlife market. I am the creator and writer of Midlife Cues, a weekly newsletter for men and women over 45, or anybody really who self-identifies as a midlifer. Lou left a very successful corporate career to try something new. I didn't know exactly what it was going to look like. Doing what I love was, I thought, an obvious starting point. And also, it was, quite frankly, easier to explain to people. I was leaving behind a successful corporate career, and I thought that it was important, or it was important for me (laughs) to sound like I knew what I was doing. Like, I'm giving myself the permission to do what I love. (laughs) Sounded a whole lot better than some vague statement about wanting to create a different work life situation for myself. The funny thing is that on hindsight, I'm not sure that, or no, I know I didn't even really spend that much time thinking about what it was really that I was supposedly loved doing. I didn't really ask myself those questions on hindsight, to be candid. Had I done that, I might have reached a different decision. Do what you love ideology also reconfigures our relationship to work. Instead of something we do, work is who we are. Weeks explains that the borders between working and not working have broken down. We can work from anywhere, so we work from everywhere. Any communication can be marketing, so all communication is marketing. Any relationship can be a business relationship. So every relationship is a business relationship. Doing what you love might make it an easier pill to swallow, but it's a bitter one nonetheless. Again, we can see how viewing work as self-actualization sets us up to circumvent material needs. Self-actualization is now positioned for many as the most basic need. Doing meaningful work is recognized as a more fundamental requirement than housing, food, or health care. You can see this in just about any help-wanted poster for a retail store or restaurant right now. They advertise a fun and creative work environment where you can fuel your purpose or follow your passion. Meanwhile, they sweep under the rug the fact that your working hours are never stable and the pay rate is less than $12 per hour. You can also see this in the way that online business courses are sold and the ways gig platforms are marketed. You can create a life you love as an empowered business owner. 
You can build a business you don't want to escape from. You can see yourself as a rock star, an influencer, a creator. You can hustle your way to your best life. But so much of this is just a spectacle. These messages lead to the performance of passion and lifestyle. The inescapable image of work passion becomes the model for how we understand ourselves and our way of life. When I talk to business owners who have bought into the spectacle, though, we discover that their real, material, creative, and psychological needs are not being met. Further, we often discover that their business is not even built to meet those needs. Here's Lou Blazer again. Doing something for the love of doing it and doing something for a living are two different things. The moment that you add the economic angle to an activity, it becomes a totally different thing. The difference between doing something because you love it and doing something you love for a living is key. As Lou said, that economic angle puts a whole different spin on things. Writer Seymour Krim put it this way in the opening lines of his celebrated essay to my brothers and sisters in the failure business. We are all victims of the imagination in this country. The American dream may sometimes seem like a dirty joke these days, but it was internalized long ago by our fevered little minds, and it remains to haunt us as we fumble with the unglamorous pennies of life during the illusionless middle years. It's those unglamorous pennies that I'm most interested in right now. I feel not only the ongoing reality check that's been at my side throughout my adulthood, but also my deep concern for my own brothers and sisters in the failure business. What choices will we make? How will we stand up for each other? What will we demand for ourselves as we start to realize that not only has work failed to provide us with self-actualization, it's failed to provide us with the basics. It might seem gauche to consider the unglamorous pennies first, but I think we must. My imagination might continue to feed my dreams, but it won't feed me in retirement. Now, I don't think it's an assumption to say that if you've started a business or you're working for yourself in some capacity, you decided to do it because there was a need or many needs that weren't being met by traditional employment. For me, it was my psychological, intellectual, and financial needs that weren't being met by my retail job. For others, it might be family needs or health needs. And for still others, the problem might be creative needs. If this weren't the case, why take the risk? Why go through the hassle? Yet I can't help but notice that many business owners are pursuing ideals of success or strategies for growth that continue to leave their needs unmet. I certainly have fallen into this over the years, and it's taken a lot of work to right the ship. Now, of course, I don't know what the state of your business or your needs are. I hope that you love what you do and that your needs are comfortably met. And I also know that there's a distinct possibility that you're feeling overwhelmed and overworked, trying to build a business based on your passion, doing work you love. You may find yourself working longer and longer hours, doing anything but work you love for the privilege of announcing to the world that you love your work. 
You may find yourself in a circle of others who've been forced out of traditional work relationships, selling endlessly to each other just to stay afloat. So where do we go from here? I have some thoughts. First, I encourage you to think critically about whether your business is meeting your needs or not. Is it doing what it's supposed to be doing for you? Ask this question regularly, even weekly or monthly, if you have to. With a tsunami of messaging washing out your own priorities and replacing them with the passion paradigm, we all have to be diligent about making sure that our businesses are meeting our needs and that the choices we make about the future keep us on that same path. Second, consider where you see do-what-you-love ideology playing out around you. Again, the point isn't to stop doing work you love or to tell your kid that they should major in something with excellent job prospects. The point is to interrogate the systems we all live in. Needs meeting is a community affair. Who around you isn't getting their needs met because their employer or coach convinced them that trading steady income or health insurance is a good trade-off for working in a fun environment or following their passion? Similarly, recognize how as business owners, freelancers, and independent workers, we're not separate from other workers. Their challenges are our challenges. Our challenges are their challenges. We have to foster solidarity with all people who aren't having their needs met today. We haven't escaped from the assembly line or from Cubicle Nation. We've only orchestrated a change of scenery. Third, use your imagination. More work doesn't have to be the answer to our biggest questions today. Performing work passion doesn't have to be a sad stand-in for stability and security. Endless consumption doesn't have to be the salve for our economic wounds. Personally, I'd love to see a 21st century version of the Works Progress Administration. Through FDR's WPA, the federal government paid 10,000 artists, writers, and designers to create works of art broadly defined across the country. If you were guaranteed a median income for doing what you love in a way that benefits our diverse culture in some way, what would you do? How would you contribute? Instead of each one of us staking a claim for an audience that might pay us directly for what we create while creating more valuable data in the process, we could leverage the commons to support a new era of cultural innovation and meaning making. Now, imagination is not my strong suit. I find comfort in looking at history to understand the present, and I'm easily trapped by the realism of our current structures and systems. But I'm hoping that this episode has sparked some ideas for you, or maybe given you some new questions to ask. So what are your imaginative solutions to our current economic situation? Do What You Love ideology tries to convince us to put up with less in exchange for the privilege of saying we love what we do. Meanwhile, the companies profiting from Do What You Love ideology, whether they're Instagram or Etsy or multi-million dollar online business companies, keep giving us more work to do that we don't love. And that's where we'll pick up next week as we look at the platforms and incentive structures that shape our work and how we can do things differently. If you're frustrated by the endless hustle to do what you love, you're not alone. You haven't failed. 
This is a structural problem. And the only way we can start to restructure things is by ensuring that we're meeting our own needs and cooperating with others as they meet theirs. If what works is helping you think differently about how you're navigating the 21st century economy, please share the show with a friend. The easiest way to do that is through Podlink. You can find the show at pod.link slash whatworks, and that page will allow anyone you share the show with to easily open their favorite podcast app and start listening. That's pod.link slash whatworks. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilda. This episode was edited by me, Tara McMullen, and Marty Seafelt. Our executive producer is Sean McMullen. What Works is recorded and produced on the ancestral homelands of the Susquehannock people. The Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Katunaha Nation. I had to face myself so I could see it clear. They had me facing myself just looking in the mirror. Type of problems that sit on your mental. When you sleeping on a cot living out the rental. No incidentals, no life insurance, ain't had no dental.